This episode of the Third Sector podcast is sponsored by Ansvar. Ansvar protects more than 17,000 charities, big and small, across the UK. Their work with key organisations and charity bodies, as well as being owned by a charity themselves, means an unparalleled level of expertise across a wide range of topics, from governance to fundraising. Ask your insurance broker today for a quote for your charity. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Andy Ricketts. And I'm Lucinda Rouse. Each week we bring you half an hour of discussion and debate about the important goings-on in the charity world. This week we'll be speaking to an organisational psychologist about toxic workplace cultures. She'll explain some of the triggers and longer-term causes of toxicity, from problematic colleagues to squeezed budgets, and give her tips for addressing them with an emphasis on being true to one's organisational values. But first, we're going to take a quick look at a new piece of research that's come out this week. Yes, that's right, Lucinda. The consultancy Eastside People produce an annual piece of research that they call the Good Merger Index. This is the 10th year that they've produced this piece of research that basically looks at the number of mergers that are going on among UK charities, although it does focus predominantly on those in England and Wales. So it's an annual report, annual piece of research. What have the key findings been from this year? Well, this year, the latest information that they have refers to the financial year that ends at the end of April 2023. So Mm -hmm. it does lag a little bit behind what's actually happening now. But this latest edition shows the lowest level of mergers between charities since Eastside started doing this report Uh, for the year 2013-14, which is probably quite surprising based on the financial pressure that a lot of charities faced during the pandemic. Last year's figures were low. There was an estimated 55 mergers between charities in um, 2021-22. Now they only found 48 mergers involving charities in the following year, which is the lowest since Eastside started producing the report. Mm, Very interesting. I guess that shows that mergers are not seen as the solution to woe-begotten charities, particularly when you think that by April 2023, the effects of the cost of living crisis were already very much there for charities. Very much so. Eastside say in the report that they think that this shows that despite the amount of financial pressure that charities faced during the pandemic they weathered that storm much better than maybe people thought they would beforehand. I mean, certainly when the pandemic started, there was all these awful predictions of doom around what was going to happen to the voluntary sector. Obviously, this doesn't take into account charities that have closed, of which we know there have been a lot. But this report says that they think that the government schemes that were put in place around the pandemic furlough scheme, that kind of stuff, and the support that the sector got from funders. We know that a lot of foundations really sort of dug deep to help charities through the pandemic. And the result of that was that the financial stress that charities faced was largely well-managed, to use Eastside's words, and didn't create the pressure, at least in the short term, for charities to merge. Another factor that they point to is... The COVID obviously was a crazy time for a lot of people, a lot of organisations, and obviously a lot of charities were facing a lot of pressure. They were very busy. 
And maybe that meant that the leaders of these organizations didn't have the headspace or the the time to think more strategically in the long term and start considering things like merger activities. Another interesting thing is that over the course of this year that the report refers to, of the 48 mergers that they identified, only four of them were mergers of so-called equals, i.e. charities of similar size coming together. Mm. The vast majority of them, and this is the case most years, but even more so this year, the majority are what you might call a takeover, where you have a big organisation subsuming a a smaller charity and they just kind of become part of that larger organisation, which you can understand in terms of it gives them the sort of financial sheltering that maybe they might be looking for. So then looking at the findings from this year compared to previous years, what's your take, Andy, on what we might be seeing in years to come? Well, the report itself, and obviously we have to bear in mind that Eastside are a consultancy that deal with mergers. So they are very pro-merger, obviously. So they Mm. want to encourage merger activity. But that health warning aside, they say that they've seen over the past year an increase in the number of inquiries from charities looking at mergers and collaborations. And actually what might happen now is obviously, you know, we're well into this cost of living crisis. We all know that charities are facing significant pressure. And I think we are seeing more examples of organisations looking to collaborate and work together as a way to work through that pressure. So Eastside themselves say that, although it's very difficult to predict, they think that there will be an increase in mergers and partnerships in the coming year, as more charities kind of look to work together to weather the storms of the cost of living crisis. It's quite interesting because mergers is something that gets talked about quite a lot. And people seem to use quite a lot of headspace thinking about mergers and talking about it. But when you think of the number of actual mergers that took place in the course of that year, it's quite stark that when you consider there's like about 170,000 charities on the England and Wales register, there Mm. were only 48 (laughs) mergers involving 96 organisations in the course of an entire year. So the actual activity is way smaller than a lot of the time and effort that is spent kind of talking about this sort of activity. Moving on to this week's main feature, have you ever worked in a toxic workplace? If you have, you'll no doubt agree that it can cause a great deal of damage to both the organisation and the people in it. But as we're about to hear, the risk of toxicity creeping in goes up significantly when an organisation is under stress largely because of a lack of resources. Dr. Susan Hetrick is an organisational psychologist and an expert in workplace cultures. She's held senior HR positions in multinational organisations, including several years at the World Bank, and recently published a book called Toxic Organisational Cultures and Leadership, How to Build and Sustain a Healthy Workplace. Susan, hello, it's great to have you with us. And I wondered if you could start by giving us your definition of a toxic workplace. Thank you. And it's great to be here as well. Thank you. A definition of a toxic workplace is one that causes harm over a sustained period. And that harm can be physical, it can be mental. In my research for doing the book, I found that toxic cultures actually kill people. So toxic cultures are themselves, as the word toxic comes from the Greek word of toxicus, 
which is actually the poison that soldiers put on the ends of their arrows. And they would fire those arrows across to the enemy. And I think that's a really important because it is a kind of sustained threat that's constant. And that image of it's not just a few bad apples or one toxic leader, it can actually be over a long period of time. And what I found in my research was exactly what you said, that the trigger is unreasonable performance pressures trigger this stages of toxicity and toxic cultures. And in terms of that toxicity, Susan, how do you gauge as a worker where a workplace crosses the line from simply being a bad place to work to actually being toxic? What kind of things and signs should people be looking out for? That's a great question. And actually, I'd say there's four stages to a toxic culture as well. And there's two main drivers. So the four stages are where unacceptable behaviours become tolerated in an organisation. So people shouting or a boss shouting or sort of elements of bullying. And if there's not zero tolerance on those behaviours, it can then drive to the next stage and those stages start to get embedded. So who you recruit, who you bring into the organisation, what training you provide, and who you promote as well are all sort of critical elements to toxicity. So the two drivers for a toxic culture, the first one is what's called normalisation of deviance. And it came from a sociologist that was researching into why the NASA spacecraft crashed, the first one, and it killed all seven astronauts on board. And it was the sense that what was seen as a risk, which were these tiny little O-rings that prevented blow back from the thruster engines, but of freezing temperatures, they became not malleable anymore. They started to kind of sort of get sort of, and that that was the reason why there was this fatal accident. But over time, when I talk about unacceptable behaviour, that normalization, that risk, which was unacceptable, became accepted. It's like, can it be that bad? It's only a very small thing. So that's one element to it. The second driver is what's called cognitive dissonance, which is what the organisation says it does on the tin is not what's going on inside. And I think that really has resonance around, you know, for many people working in organisations, particularly of doing good, may not be the experience of what they're actually experiencing inside the organisation. So externally, the organisation is saying that we're doing good in whatever charity that they're working for and it's very important but inside they may be experienced very long hours relentless pressure which is not necessarily what the organization is out there saying and once you've got that disconnect and cognitive dissonance comes from this piece in psychology it comes from research in psychology that says as human beings we can hold almost two contradictory beliefs And the best illustration of that is if I take a private sector organisation, VW, that many listeners will be familiar with, who for a number of years went out and were role modelling, saying that their cars were, as far as possible, you know, reducing carbon emissions and they were, you know, they found a way to have clean diesel. But actually behind that, the set of engineers right through to the top were actually fooling the regulators in California to say, and they fitted these cheap devices in the cars 
that would show that the emissions were low, lower than they were actually. They were called cheap devices. In fact, the company at one point recalled all the cars in the States and fitted a more sophisticated version of this cheap device. So it was saying one thing about we're role modelling, selling all these cars, but actually what it was doing was really the antithesis of what it was stating. So that's cognitive dissonance. And once you start to have in an organisation a difference between what it feels or what the values are saying to the outside world inside, that is a key driver to a toxic culture. And thinking about one of our listeners, a charity management charity chief exec, seeing that there are potential signs of toxicity creeping into their organisation, how can it be nipped in the bud before it gets too much? I'm a great believer in running surveys and running anonymous surveys to actually ask people how those, what people are actually experiencing. Many organisations will put in places like whistleblowing and saying, you know, we have this in place. But if you've got an element of distrust in an organisation, then people won't actually use those resources. They will be quite scared naturally that it will come back and there will be some forms of reprisal. So ensuring that there is a sense of measurement in the organisation, listening to what is actually being said in the organisation and role modelling the right behaviours for charities particularly and for CEOs. And I work as a non-exec director for one charity and really looking at the CEOs of role modelling that behaviour. And I know one organisation that seven years ago had enormous pressures put on it, and I see this in the charity sector, of this sense of, you know, more and more demands on revenue and performance. And as a consequence, there was a huge number of grievances that came. The then CEO had to resign and left. And there was quite a lot of picking up the pieces, particularly on financial management, that the organisation needed to go through. And I'd say still after sort of seven years, there's still a sense of, trauma from people who worked in that situation. So for CEOs to be constantly thinking about the culture of the organisation, what the values are there, is everything in terms of the values, the processes, do they do they support what the organisation wants to be? So you may say, well, we're about collaboration and excellence and respect. Well, do you actually measure that people in your organisation have the skills capability to do that particular value do they see it role modeled in their leaders and do the policies and processes actually support that or do they contradict that so I always find it very interesting in organizations where they say look we've got these real challenges you know we're having individuals you know competing with each other and it's very gossipy and there's all this going on and then you find that they've got a performance management which is very individually focused or this you know particularly in the private sector where there may sort of be bonuses on that and of course it becomes an organization of very sharp elbows of people trying to look the best and in terms of what they're doing so so it's looking at those type of areas the policies and processes do i have the skills do i see it role model And do you find that it tends to be found in certain types of workplace above any other? Might there be certain charities that are more prone to experiencing this kind of behaviour in their organisation or can it just be across the board? 
Unfortunately, it's across the board. There is not one organisation, and having been in HR for 35 years, I'd say all organisations, every CEO should be conscious that there will be elements of, of a toxicity, which may be unreasonable demands. It may be, you know, constant and relentless pressures. So being very mindful of those areas and keep creating a balance. We all have stress, we all have pressures, but it's when it becomes unreasonable and that it can't go on and people are not being listened to. So from my own research, and many sectors have asked me that in the education, in the NHS, in charities, I think every organisation has a susceptibility to it. We're becoming far more conscious of what that looks like. So... Yeah, it is across the board. I was wondering what your thoughts were on the relationship between charity management and the board, because that is often a big sticking point when it comes to delivering charity services and making sure that it's effectively run. How can charities avoid toxicity between their management and their board? Two things that charities can pay attention to. One is involving the board in looking at strategy overall, looking at the challenges, particularly of funding rounds, the long process of actually looking at how that would work and being transparent to some of those challenges so that we are all on the same journey, the board and the management team. I don't think the board should get involved on those day-to-day operational decisions unless it needs to but the board has a duty to look at culture and what is going on and starting to look at measures so one of the areas I'm working in with the charity sector is actually looking at a survey to kind of look at culture and engagement I think what has become very stark particularly for people listening here on the podcast is the lack of resources or the lack of money that's able to put into training and development. And I think that is a real challenge because if we start to look at culture and and toxic cultures, one of the key elements that I would recommend is to really focus on management development. What does it mean to be a manager? How do you behave? And what we're seeing, and this is again in the private sector as well, some research that's done recently that said, 80% of people that were put into managerial positions had no experience and no training in how to become a manager. So that in itself is a real challenge. The pieces around that, what you sometimes see in charities, and you you don't have to look very far to see sometimes CEOs behaving very much around their own agenda as opposed to the agenda of the organisation. And that's very important for the board to be really aware of, ensuring that the values of the CEO really fully align with the mission of the organisation. And I wonder if you're able to give some top tips on how to address a toxic charity workplace if you get into this. I mean, you have touched on this a little bit before already, Susan, but it'd be useful to give listeners some practical ideas of What kind of things can we do? We feel like we're getting into a problem here. How can we go about fixing it? Particularly for those smaller charities, maybe, that don't have much money, for example, to spend on management consultants or whoever who might be able to come in and and help the organisation. What can organisations do? Well, I think kind of addressing what the root is. We haven't talked about whether the root is around just, you know, the external pressures and that issue around it. 
or whether there's some individual behavior going on in terms of unacceptable behaviors. So, so actually trying to understand, you know, where those issues are. There are no quick fixes, but there are sort of like sustainable areas over a period of time, which don't always have to, you know, cost money. I mean, there are sort of like plenty of material that's out there on YouTube and everything about effective management and what does it mean to be a leader, etc. So there's a lot around in that area. I think really kind of much more about sort of open dialogue, being willing to kind of to listen, to have sort of structured sort of team meetings, to be able to call out toxic behaviours was really important, to actually have those more difficult conversations with individuals to say, this is not the way that we work here, this is not part of our values. Those things are, there's no doubt, that's challenging in, across all sectors and and being a leader, and that's kind of some of the challenging pieces, but also being the the leader that you want to be led by. So, you know, role modelling the right type of behaviours. We all get under pressure and everything else, but remaining sort of calm, being that role model, being the leader that you wish you had, that to me is a really sort of key part to it and is something that I think as a leader is constantly reflecting back at the end of each day, you know, what did I do? What could I have done better? What would I do differently next time? You know, those type of self-learning and self-reflection. And Susan, if we look a little bit forward in terms of, I think people are becoming more aware of where there are toxic workplaces. What's your hope and expectation in terms of how things will move forward with workplaces? Are you seeing an improvement? And if so, what can we expect to happen in the future? I think it's such a critical issue that we're only at the start of really addressing toxic workplace cultures and leadership. And I think, you know, particularly in the charity world, looking at recruitment, retention, training, development, the challenges that we've got on sort of like on resourcing is is in getting the right skill sets is really important. My hope would be that we really address this at a national level around what do we think a good organization to do, what measures are in place, prevent workplace bullying and harassment, be very open about what we expect that to do, so that I think we have a, a potential crisis on our hands around toxic cultures across many organisations and so being able to report on our culture, report on values across sectors will be very powerful and being really open to really improving the workplace. I think as leaders, my call to leaders would be to say it's not only about creating a, a healthy and positive workplace culture but it's also recognising that you are saving lives, really improving the health and quality of the people that are engaged in your organisation. Quite a sobering note to end on, but very useful to have some clear pointers in how charities can work to improve their culture. So Susan Hetrick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll be taking you behind the scenes at Just Giving to find out how charities can get the most out of their online fundraising based on the latest trends they've been tracking. But for now, thanks very much to our guests, Susan Hetrick and our producers, Inga Marsden and Navpal.